भद्रम कर्णे शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येक्षजत्रा स्थिरंगुष्टुवागम सस्तनो व्यशेम देवित स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्ति नूषा विश्ववेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्षो अरिष्टनेमी स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओ शांतिशाशा सो वी आर स्टडिंग द मंडुक्योपनिषद सेकेंड चैप्टर इन द सेकेंड चैप्टर गौड़पाद वॉन्ट्स टू डेमोन्स्ट्रेट दि सेंट्रल टीचिंग वन एस्पेक्ट टू द सेंट्रल टीचिंग ऑफ अद्वैत वेदांत वन एस्पेक्ट इज दट द वर्ल्ड इज एन अपियरेंस The ultimate reality is pure consciousness, of course, but the world is an appearance. What is this multiple multiplicity we see? It's an appearance in pure consciousness. Now, this is what Gaurapada wants to demonstrate with the use of uh, reasoning based on our own experience. And this is what he has been doing in the second chapter. Now that's over, and to conclude, he gives us, you know, we have this question. So what? Now, now, what do you do with this knowledge? Where do you go with this? So he gives us these four beautiful verses, very inspiring verses. How to live, how to practice this, how to bring it into our own life. We have done two of the verses. The first one, uh, that is verse number 35, 35, 36, 37, 38, four verses. 35, it said that um, fourfold qualifications are necessary. Viveka treasures and um, intense desire to be free, mumukshutvam. So that was said in the uh, 35th verse and emphasized the importance of Vedantic study. That means you immerse yourself in this knowledge and uh, then you realize. The verse is Vitaraga bhaya krodhair munibhir veda paragai निर्विकल्पो ब्यूटिफुल वर्स वेर ही मेन्शन्स द फोर फोर क्वालिफिकेशन्स ऑफ वेदांत सेज हू हेज ट्रांसेंडेड अट्रैक्शन एंड रिपल्शन राग द्वेश फियर एंड एंगर भय एंड क्रोध हू हेज ट्रांसेंडेड दीज And Munibhir Veda Paragay, by one who is immersed in this Vedantic uh, awareness. It's on the basis of this knowledge, this understanding, that a person who has already transcended this and on the basis of this study realizes the Atman, the self. Ayam means this self. Drishta, see, sees means not with these eyes, with the eye of knowledge, understands, I am such and such. What is this self? Nirvikalpaha. Very beautiful two terms have been used. Um, nirvikalpaha. Without any division. You see the waker is different from the dreamer. The dreamer is different from the deep sleeper. <coughs> but it is one Atman, one pure consciousness in which these three divisions appear and disappear. Does that make sense? You are the consciousness which itself appears as the waker now. 
which itself appears as the deep uh, as the dreamer in your dreams which itself is the one which has the deep sleep experience that one consciousness has none, no division in itself you realize i am that and in this consciousness there is no external world prapanchopashama the world is is an appearance in this consciousness it's not like here i am and there is a world outside me the way we normally think prapanchopashama the cessation of the world advayaha non dual this consciousness is non dual then one more thing the verse no, verse number 36 emphasizes the importance of nididhyasana vedantic meditation that is to dwell on this truth to to be centered in this truth 36 was tasmadevam viditvainam advaite yojayet smritim advaitam samanuprapya jaravad lokam acharet once you have realized once this uh, knowledge becomes clear i am this atman one needs to stay with it remain uh, centered in it for a long time so that the contrary tendencies in the mind the habitual patterns of behaving as body mind they are eradicated you're already enlightened but to manifest this enlightenment in in life that requires you to remain centered in this in advaite yojayet smritim connect your memory that means connect your recollection maintain that awareness that i am brahman uh, not for enlightenment you are already enlightened here you are using that in like bringing the light of that enlightenment to bear upon your life and then what do you do having realized non duality advaitam samanuprapya what do you do jadavat lokam achar the surprising uh, statement behave in the world just like any the other ignorant people those who have not realized live your live your life in a most ordinary fashion don't immediately start a cult i am enlightened now come and worship me <laughs> follow me i shall liberate you um, don't do don't create a fuss uh, live exactly as you were living you might say oh what's the use then i all this was for nothing i i am special if you want to be special that is then then you are you cannot be a non dualist the enlightened person is the most ordinary and externally the enlightened person does not want to be even the least bit different from others the idea that this body and mind must be somehow special different from others which is deep inside us that is bar, that is rooted in uh, ignorance that is rooted in ignorance it's because i identify myself entirely with this body and mind i want to make it special but your special nature my special nature our special nature is this, is the absolute itself is this glorious non dual consciousness which is the the ground of this entire universe yes doesn't it lead to the absolute freedom basically yes yes it's like enlightenment it's like i feel like it's a gateway to this absolute freedom it is absolute freedom absolutely because then you're here it doesn't really matter it doesn't matter and it's it's not it doesn't matter a kind of uh, a hopelessness not like that it's glorious you're free so yeah. it doesn't matter yes it you're free even trying to make this body and mind special it's a kind of enslavement mm-hmm. you're trapped in this uh, vicious circle of trying to you know make this body healthier richer uh, make this mind more learned more more spiritual more calm more uh, more enlightened no 
you are, have found that which is perfect already. You, and you realize, I am that. Yes. One more question yeah. that I'm struggling with. So if I'm Brahman, what about a prayer to God? I like my relationship hmm. with God. But that's still then a separate. True. Once you realize your uh, true nature as that non-dual reality, and then that relationship that you have with God. Remember, that desire for, that love for God, that reverence for God, it's in the mind, clearly. Because, for example, when the mind goes to sleep in deep sleep, where is the reverence for God? Where, where, where is the devotion to God? Where is God, in fact? Where is the devotee and where is God? Not there. Once you, you separate yourself from the mind, it happens in unconsciousness or deep sleep. So, um, when we are associated with the mind, and I find myself, the world comes back into my awareness, then I can continue to worship God. I, there is a very beautiful saying that before realization, before enlightenment, this world of duality leads to delusion. We get trapped in samsara. After you are enlightened, you realize this, after you realize this, then an imagined duality, an imagined duality uh, for what? For worshipping God, as you said, for, for the love of God is, uh, is more beautiful than non-duality. The original Sanskrit goes, um, Bodhat Prak Dvaitam Mohaya. Before enlightenment, duality leads to samsara. Moha means to delusion. This is, we are trapped in this duality. This is samsara. Prapte Manishaya. Once you are enlightened, I am Brahman, I am the Absolute, you realize that. After that, you can still superimpose a duality upon yourself because you do appear as a person. So if I am the person now, I realize in the background, I am that non-dual Brahman. But as a person, I can relate to that very non-dual Brahman as God. It will come today in today's verse again. You can have your cake and eat it too. Once you do that and imagine a duality, it's an imagined or superimposed duality. Why would you even superimpose that? Because first of all it appears to you. You still have a body. So if you can eat and walk and talk and uh, go to your job and come to Vedanta class, why can't you love God? Of course you can love God. And that is, it says, Advaita Dapisundaram, that kind of superimposed duality is more beautiful than non-duality. I mean, you have the non-duality already. And on the basis of that, in fact, in our order, in fact, in all the non-dualist orders, in Shankara and all of them, they all worship God in this fashion exactly. Shankara himself has composed such beautiful hymns to God. Are they in, contra in contradic um, contradiction to his non-duality? No, no, no. They are based on non-duality. Now, now, one more point here. Suppose... Now will you say, that if that is so, then suppose I, I am not inclined this way, suppose somebody says, non-duality is sufficient for me, I am not particularly interested in God or worshipping God, then, then it's also alright, it's perfectly alright, because that non-dual reality is the reality. Once you are based on that, any form of life you, you take up, Jaravat Loka Macharit, he says, like the, the, un, the unenlightened folk, the way they lead their lives, some may be very, very um, uh, ritualistic, 
some may be engaged in action some may seem to be engaged in worldly uh, may seem to be engaged in worldly pleasures but underlying all of them is that one blazing realization i think last time i quoted that verse uh, krishna bhogi shukas tyagi uh, krishna is uh, engaged with 16000 gopis uh, and uh, shuka is a great renunciant he has only a, a loin cloth and nothing else in the world has given up everything extraordinarily austere and rama is a as a king and janaka is an emperor they are kings they are engaged in administering king kingdoms and vashishta is vashishta karmanishtascha is engaged in ritualistic religion they seem so diverse one seems to be you know the lover of 16000 gopis other one seems to be the supreme monk to another two seem to be uh, great kings busy with their empires another one seems to be a ritualistic a very religious kind of person samaha gyani nate they are same as far as their enlightenment is concerned yes i was listening to ayan maharaj's talk again and uh, he draws a very clear distinction between gaudapada and shankara's gnana yoga path is the golden path as opposed to the more encompassing uh what he calls the gyan uh, advaita of uh, uh, ramakrishna hmm. so um where 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 shankara and all say that you know uh, karma yoga and bhakti yoga only take you so far and then you have to go to gnana yoga so what is uh, what is your view of that as as our teacher <laughs> Mm. which which camp are you in are you straight uh, answer right <laughs> no uh, i i i mean i mean uh, all camps if you ask see if you think uh, keep a couple of things in mind one is we are studying gaurapadana so we must be loyal to the text what we are trying to study unless you grasp one uh, you won't get anything so this is one the second thing is Advaita is a kind of foundation for all of this. Even for Sri Ramakrishna's Vigyana Vedanta, that is based on non-dualism. You can, Sir, um, Ayan Maharaj presented it as an extension, a superstructure built on non-dualism. But non-dualism is the foundation. If you stop here, you get Gaudapada or Shankara. But you can go further. Uh, that's what Ayan Maharaj is saying. That Sri Ramakrishna is, draws a much longer, larger, much larger canvas. And I would tend to agree. I would tend to agree. Should the Sri Ramakrishna encompass duality? I mean, is, is Bhakti Yoga not duality? That duality which Sri Ramakrishna talks about now—it's uh, um, see because he is talking in a much larger canvas. He says that there is. You look at it this way: there is one ultimate reality. Now realize it in whichever way you can. He's saying that this non-duality is a path to that, definitely. But if you take it dualistically, without even coming to non-duality, is that wrong? is that limited according to shankara and all it is limited it's still within the, the transactional realm sri ramakrishna would say no you touch the reality in whichever way you can you will become enlightened now to say something like that you must have a broader framework which is what ayan maharaj is sketching with the vigyana vedanta i would tend to agree with that but with one qualification if you push me on that if you ask too many questions i will immediately retreat to gaudapada and shankara 
One reason is it, it tallies well with my conviction. Second is it's a thoroughly well worked out system. For the last 14, 15, 100 years, so many questions have been attacked and so, asked and so many attacks have been withstood that you have the, the tradition has worked out the answers and approaches to, to all these questions. Right? So Bhakti Yoga has not been worked out? It's been worked out, but the problem with that is, for example, if I take from this point of view, if you take a bhakti, something like bhakti yoga, without the purely dualistic kind of bhakti yoga, the first objection will be it's an entire, it's a belief system. You believe in it. Once you really believe in it, nothing more needs to be asked. But if you ask questions, that's why no bhakti tradition are they willing to withstand questions. There's a limit to questioning there. After that, they will say, no, my book says it, or God said it. I believe in it. If you say it, it's irrational, that's an... No. They will not agree. Another reason is, in this day and age, the non-dualistic, this, this approach, which you have in, say, Tibetan Buddhism or in Advaita Vedanta, is the only one which can actually engage with the thought of this age. So today I can go to NYU and talk with David Chalmers, unequal terms about consciousness and he's interested in what I have got to say. I'm interested in the way he's putting the question. But if I'm a, say, a simple devotee of Christ or Krishna, they're not interested in what I've got to say. They'll dismiss me immediately as some religious nut. And I'm, I have no way of connecting the, to the questions they're asking. If my appeal is to God, what can I say to an atheist? If you push the matter, you become, uh, you see, you become a religious fanatic. In, um, you say, has it been worked out? The dualist will say, yes, it has been worked out. If you look at it from an agnostic point of view, atheistic point of view, you will say, no, nothing has been worked out. It's just a belief system. How do you answer that? There's no answer to it. The dualist certainly believes there's an answer, but his belief is based on a belief. If you probe any, if you prove the, the dualistic, other than Advaita, if you prove the other systems, Vishishta Advaita, Dvaita, uh, Shuddha Advaita, they, they are all Bhakti systems. They cannot withstand questions. Krishna, Vishnu, Vaikuntha, why? What are you believing? I love my Krishna. Very good. Does Krishna exist? How do you know? Somebody said to me, no, but don't we believe that the Atman or Brahman exists? In that case, you have not understood the first thing about Advaita, I'm sorry. You don't belong in this class. We are basing this entire study on the undeniable certitude of your own existence. Have you ever seriously doubted that you exist? You can doubt what you are. And Advaita encourages you to doubt that. But that you do exist. There is some kind of existence. Even the Buddhist doesn't exist, uh, deny that. That we have some kind of existence. What are we? That's the question. That's where Advaita starts. It does not start with the belief in some God, in some heaven. No. So Swami Vivekananda said, that's why more than 100 years ago, Advaita is the only system for modern man, for, is the only kind of religion that modern man can believe in. Now, what I've seen often happening is people come to this and get an interest in this 
and then slowly they become more accepting of dualistic religion. Many people they come to Vedanta, they have they are skeptical about religion. Generally, genuine spiritual seekers they go through a phase of skepticism, agnosticism, and then they need clear reasons, clear demonstration, clear proof that some such thing is there. So then they come to either Advaita or Yoga and then they come into and after that they become more accepting of dualism. A dualism based on the non-dualistic truth is acceptable. Our dualism in the Ramakrishna order or all the Shankara schools, they seem to be doing a lot of puja and worship. It's all f f uh, firmly based on non-dualism. Sri Ramakrishna himself, he would repeat one thing. He would say tie the knowledge of Advaita to the knot, the hem of your cloth and then do whatever you can, whatever you want. I've said this earlier. In Bengali, he would say, Adoito gyan achole bede jaiche tai karo. Tied hem of your clothes, an allusion to um, women in um, India, especially rural women on small towns. They would tie the keys, keys to the house, bunch of keys to the hem of their saris. Uh, so that's how they would tie it there. And Sri Ramakrishna uses that example. Tie the knowledge of Advaita there. That means this whole that make it your foundation. Then do whatever you please. Whatever you please means be a dualist, be a tremendously active person in the world, be a, 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 an ascetic like Ramana Maharshi living in a cave, a great meditator, be a great jnani, be the most inconspicuous of persons where nobody notices. Whatever you want to do, you, you can live in that way because you are Brahman. Let's hear the questions quickly. Yes, uh, I'll come to I had a question. You have talked about uh, the hard problem of consciousness mm. earlier. Uh, I had a question about how it would relate to Raja Yoga in the sense that when a sadhak is in advanced stages of meditation, they may feel a state of mania or depression at the time. Is that, would you say, because of chemical reactions which are happening in the body or is that something that the consciousness is governing? How would you take it? You said so many things. You said <laughs> Raja Yoga, hard problem of consciousness, um, meditating deeply and feeling various kinds of depression or mania and uh, the neurochemicals in the body, right. in the brain. What, can you narrow down your question so specifically? Like the scientific community would say that uh, you're having uh, mania or depression because of chemical reactions in the body. Yeah. Whereas uh, if you're meditating and you are in that state where you are having some sensations which are very strange at that time. Uh, is that something that is governed by the consciousness or is that actual chemical reactions which are happening in the body uh, is what I was trying to understand. What do you mean, mean by governed by consciousness? Uh, I mean is that something natural that happens to people who are meditating? Uh, oh. Now we are coming to the question. It's all, almost entirely unrelated to what we are studying by the way. No, no, you don't have to, sorry. But I understand you're asking, this is, this is a natural question to ask. Let me give you an Advaitic answer to this. Uh, have you attended earlier classes? This? Not this one, but other classes. Uh, no, no, the Mandukya class? No. You haven't attended Mandukya class. See, from the point of view of Mandukya Upanishad, from the point of view of Advaita Vedanta, the analysis is very clean and elegant. You ha are having extraordinary sensations. Feelings, thoughts, uh, might be um, like uh, manic thoughts or depressive thoughts. From Advaita Vedanta point of view, those thoughts are objects. 
just as this is an object and it's illumined by consciousness, you are aware of it. Those thoughts are also objects. Now the question is, what are those thoughts due to? And, and from Advaita point of view, that's all that's important. Advaita is not interested in your thoughts. What is Advaita interested in? Can anybody tell me? In you. You say, no, no, but I am depressive. Or I am having manic. Go see a psychiatrist. Or do something else. But Advaita is saying, you the one who is experiencing these thoughts. Advaita is interested in you, the experiencing consciousness, not in what you experience. What you experience is the realm of psychiatry, it's the realm of, um, of uh, uh, different kinds of spiritual practices like bhakti or yoga. Even, even yoga philosophy, Patanjali yoga is not interested in that. The very fundamentals of Patanjali Yoga, absolute ABCD, is that you are the pure consciousness, not the vittis, not the thoughts in your mind. So a manic thought, a depressive thought, is a thought. If this is not clear, nothing of what we are going to do today will make any sense whatsoever. Or it will even worse, it will be, be dangerously misleading. We are going to go into the very, very climax of the second chapter today. Yeah. See, I am giving these things, I know, we, we are very ambitious in this class, we are starting off at the top. We are not climbing up systematically from base upwards. So at the top, I am giving it with that idea that you will take it responsibly. So what we are going to do today, for example. Uh, but today we will come to uh, uh, the, the final verse of this uh, chapter, which will say exactly this, that whatever happens in the mind, it really doesn't matter. It's going to come to that. And to understand that, I'm going to come to you, but yes. So the ans answer to that is, yes, uh, it could be chemical reactions, I'm sure. If there is a thought in the mind, it's a vritti uh, in the mind. Now we're not talking Advaita at all. From Patanjali Yoga point of view, any kind of thought, including a manic thought, a depressive thought, is a vritti in the mind. If it's a vritti in the mind, now coming down to the level of psychiatry, if it's a vritti in the mind, then there must be some corresponding chemical activity going on, neurochemical activity going on in the brain. Sure, all that's possible. Advaita, not interested in this. Patanjali Yoga, only marginally interested in this. Psychiatry is interested in this. Neuroscience is interested in this. Right? Okay. Alright, first of all, this question of duty and morality, good things, God, bad things, what is it that stops you from doing bad things or even good things in deep sleep? You just cannot do anything. You cannot do anything. Now imagine, from a non-dualistic perspective, there's only Brahman. I don't have to be, see, this is like, I am this person, this body and mind, 
I have to be kicked and beaten by God to be nice. Otherwise, I will be naughty. So this is the most kindergarten kind of religion. God will will um, uh, spank you if you are if you are naughty, and God will give you cookies if you are if you are uh, uh, nice, right? So this is the, the most kindergarten kind of religion. I mean, it, some people might need it. It's slightly above animals. Nothing more than that. It's not a kind of religion that interests me. It's kind of repugnant to me, actually. Now, that role is taken up by the more sophisticated form, if you want to say, by the role, by karma. Cause and effect. So in Indian religions, for example, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, karma, good karma, it automatically leads to um, good results. So dharma leads to punya, punya leads to sukha. Bad karma, adharma leads to papa, papa leads to dukkha. And the whole system is administered by God. So in this sense, it's basically the same idea, but in a more sophisticated, philosophically more satisfying way. That cause and effect. Why is it more satisfying? Because we believe in cause and effect. Everybody believes in cause and effect. So if you put good and bad in terms of cause and effect, seems to be a more... Uh, um, none of it is again of any interest to the non-dualist. What good and bad when there is no world at all? If Brahman alone exists, but you say, anyway, that might be nice philosophically, but practically what prevents a non-dual? It's, it's a good, important question, good question. Um, two things. First of all, practically, this person, as we just saw, to, be this, to reach this stage at all, we just saw the fourfold qualifications. A person is already uh, has a strong foundation of morality. There's no question of lying, stealing, murdering, if you are in this path. Fourfold qualifications, if you actually meet a good student in this path, you would consider that person to be already a saint. There's no question asking why that person would do, do something bad. Why, why does anybody do anything bad? Why does anybody do anything bad? Tell me. Gain. Uh, fear. I will get something or I will lose something. Either there is temptation or there is fear. And when the temptation and fear is too much, we overstep the limits of, of decency, morality, law, and then we do bad things. That's why, just think, is there any exception to this? No exception. Nobody does bad things out as a spiritual practice. Why do you steal? Because it's good for my meditation. No. Why do you hurt people? Because it's great for enlightenment. No. Nobody does it. It's ridiculous. It's just because we can't, we, we are unable to control temptation or fear. These are two things. Either driven by fear, anxiety, I tell a lie. Because if I get caught, oh my God, what will happen? Or temptation. If I tell a lie, I will get such and such things. So that adharma is prompted by fear or temptation. This person, because of renunciation, complete renunciation, does not have anything to gain from this world and has nothing to fear from this world. Why would this person do anything bad? And might do because of past conditioning. And so there will be a struggle. Nobody is an automatic saint. But there is a struggle. So by the time a person comes to enlightenment, the person's conditioning is already is, is what you one we might call a saint already. So it's very unlikely that a person will do uh, bad things because of conditioning, because of sadhana. 
already the person's body mind complex is so purified so disciplined you would, it will be very strange if that person suddenly after enlightenment ah i'm enlightened now now i can go around stealing and telling lies no look at the lives of enlightened people you never see such a thing yeah and one more thing um, philosophically this is because of practical conditioning philosophically if you see god inside and outside whom do you want to hurt what do you want to take from somebody else if you are one being whom to praise and whom to blame do you still have a question yeah no what i meant was that uh, this uh, the only thing i was trying to say was that this is basically the objection that the bhakti kind of people have that huh. it's very easy to understand the bhakti in the sense of reward <laughs> but Is it to understand bhakti as reward means? In a sense that there is a real, there is a very easy rule, right? If I do this, then I get this. If I don't do this, I don't get this. Yes, that is karma. Yeah. Nothing to do with bhakti at all. Sorry, karma. But then you don't have any such rule when you go to Advaita. Why don't you have why don't you have any such rule the law of karma applies to everybody So even when you are uh, practicing advaita you still are expected to practice karma You're bound by karma I guess if you're an advaitin If practicing advaita The law of karma does not they don't ask you what you have signed up for the law of karma will not say that you are attending Vedanta classes and so you are exempt from the law of karma. No. So, whatever you believe, whatever you practice does not matter. If karma is real, if actions have consequences, they'll have consequences for everybody. Why won't they have consequences for an Advaitin? Of course, if an Advaitin commits a sin, we'll get the result of sin. Why not? Yes. <laughs> Law of karma holds for everybody. Yeah. Think about it. What is the question here? It's like uh, let me let, let let me try to put it from the I have heard these objections from the bhakti schools. Let me see if I can put it in their language. It, does it sound familiar? The advaitin thinks I am God, and so the advaitin can do say I can do anything. It does not matter. And this is very sinful. Yeah, it's too simplistic. <laughs> no, this is the f- form of the question. Is this how they ask? Is this what you are asking? No, what I'm trying to find out is... If he, this is what you are asking, this is a question. This is, this is what they ask and for this there is an answer. If this is not what you are asking, then I don't understand what you are asking. No, it's like how there is an objection to an atheist person. That some uh, very religious people who uh, believe that if I do a good thing, then I will always get a... So those people don't believe that an atheist person can be moralistic. Right. So now you're shifting the question. So, so similarly, similarly in Advaitin. Okay. 
So uh, the question is, an atheist is not going to be moral. Many atheists would be very, very annoyed at that, very, very offended at that. But yeah, but that's a question. That's a, that uh, religious people often say that religion holds the grounds for morality. Um, so if you don't believe in God, how can you be moral? How, that's, that's, that's the question. That's the question. I'm not saying that you believe it, but this is the question. And so, can a similar question be asked of the non-dualist? Answer is no. Because the non-dualist believes in God. You look surprised. The non-dualist believes in God. Look, here, we have got... Uh, we worship. So, uh, God definitely does exist. And we believe in God. Ah, now you are qualifying the question. Do you see how you have to work on setting the question up right? Now you are saying that uh, uh, you have to believe in God, but you have to believe in God in the dualistic way. No, I, what I am saying is when you worship, then it comes across more like a dualistic. So non-dualistic non, non people also worship? Shankaracharya also worshipped? But it's not from the angle that only if I worship, then I am doing something for the if I don't worship, that's also fine. Yeah. That, that is true. But it's, it's not that uh, they don't believe in God. They know that God exists. They, they believe in karma. They believe in God. That's why. You see, the answer... It, I mean, this is like... Uh, there are two levels at which Advaita functions. One is Paramarthika. Another is Vyavaharika. Vyavaharika is transactional. At the transactional level, you have Jiva, you and I. You have Ishwara, God, you have Karma. And all of these questions, all of dualistic religion is acceptable at the level, Vyavaharika level. Why would there be a question? Why would there be a problem? There is a... She is not wrong. This question does come up. The dualists, they act... But because, because they don't understand Advaita. They are rattled by Advaita. See... The idea is, somehow they are suspicious. These guys are something like atheists. <laughs> Do they uh, believe in God? The thing is, the, the, uh, the dualist is firmly set in the belief, I am this body-mind. Or even if not the body, I am an individual sentient being. I go from body to body and there is a separate God existing who rules this universe to whom we must uh, surrender. And this is how it is. Dualists will say, yes, this is what you don't believe. But Advaitin will say, this is what we believe. At the Vyavaharika level. There is a deeper level than this. That's all we are saying. At this level, if I do wrong things, then I will be punished for that. I will, I will get the results of bad karma. Let's hear the questions first, yes. Yeah, are, are the chances less for women <laughs> becoming enlightened? No, 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 not at all, not at all. No, not less, but I'm confused by the mm. fact that why is it that we don't hear about enlightened women? Why well, there, there are, there were in the Upanishads also. You kind of come across people like uh, Gargi and Maitri who were, they were there. But still, you're, you're, one or two or three, uh, and uh, there are few, but, uh, but um, 
in in all the uh, myths also you come the ramayana mahabharat you come across uh, women um, like shabari for example uh, mira mira is much later it's not in the um, yeah. it's not mythical so throughout the history of hinduism for example or buddhism also you will come across many many women who were enlightened there is absolutely nothing which prevents uh, women from being enlightened but you would still say that it still seems to be a little imbalance there at least a little if not a lot and that's the i would agree with you entirely remember these were enormously patriarchal societies all throughout all across the world so every religion would seem to be dominated by men would seem to be dominated by men so does that mean women have a second class um, uh, position or they are not uh, women are not eligible for enlightenment no not at all For, no, no, it, it's biased it, it, it is biased because of because of the fact because of historical reasons, because of historical reasons, and there is absolutely no reason why um, women um, cannot be spiritual equally as much as men, and actually in in many traditions more than men, and enlightened as well. Absolutely no difference at all. Um, and from the Advaita point of view, again. There is no difference of gender. It, there cannot be. No, I didn't believe yeah. that. I was just. I know. A general question that there seems to be the bias towards. Uh, I, I know. So my answer to that is: first of all, no. From uh, a non-dualistic perspective, men and women are absolutely equal. From a non-dual perspective, we are not men or women. We are <laughs> beyond gender, not transgender or anything. Beyond gender, these are all body-related. So from. you don't even have to come to advaita any kind of uh, hindu view or jain view or buddhist view would say that we have gone through so many bodies human bodies animal bodies male bodies female bodies so are you man or woman in this particular body i might be a man but earlier who knows and later on who knows so that strong discrimination is actually not a part of the indian mental makeup that men and women because reason is we are not body centered in that sense we are not fundamentally bodies with spirits we are spirits with bodies yeah so that's there having said that it's also true that indian society like all other societies were strongly patriarchal dominated by men until very recently now changes are coming big changes across the world and in india too and these changes are there in religion and have to be reflected in religion they should be they should be reflected in religion actually if you say from um from that perspective if you ask what is it in this vedanta in in gogodapada or in shankara which gives men an advantage over women nothing nothing even when there are some texts in which shankara seems to say that men have an advantage over women all those things are can be traced back to culture and society there is nothing in the philosophy itself in spirituality itself which says men are in any sense superior to women can't be yeah anyway it's good that you asked all right let's hear the questions um uh, last week i asked you a question um um and you mentioned the difference between brahman and uh as a muslim i use the name allah hmm. and my question went to whether or not it was an equivalent which i was trying to draw upon in my mind you said no and you said that there was a different word that you used in relationship to the use of the word allah mm. 
I don't remember what that was. Saguna Brahman, Brahman with qualifications. Thank you. Yeah. It's my understanding now from some reading that I've done, um, including in the book that we're studying tonight, that um, the essence, is that a better terminology to be used for Brahman? Because what I think I am beginning to understand is if there had been no, <laughs> this is funny, it's tricky, but if there had been no creation, and of course in Vedanta there is no creation, if there was no illusion of creation, there would be no need for an illusion of divinity. Hmm. And it's a relative... Very beautifully put, correct. I agree with that entirely, yes. So now when there is this illusion of creation, there is also the illusion of divinity and also the illusion of individuality. And at that level, this is very beautifully put, the Vyavaharika is what he said. Illusion of divinity, illusion of individuality, and new illusion of creation. Why would you call it illusion? Because at the heart, at the essence, that one undivided reality still remains. It has not been divided up into divinity and individuality and creation. It still is undivided. Then what is this? It must be an appearance then. What else could it be? Right. But if you, in, from this point of view, if you look at that divinity, then it appears to you as God. So that is what the Hindu would call Saguna Brahman, Ishwara or Bhagavan. The Muslim would call God or the Jew would call Jehovah or would not call, would not openly say that. Uh, or, or Bhagavan, Ishwara, whatever. Yeah. Correct. And anybody else wanted to say something? Yes. Well, I, I still have trouble because <clears throat> every time you use the word God, it just flex my my mind gets confused. Couldn't you study this vendetta with, uh, without using the word God? At Absolutely. So this is the other extreme of what you were asking. From if you say that, from the dualistic point of view, that is not acceptable at all. That is, you are an atheist. You are beyond the pale of religion and all of that. The non-dualist says perfectly all right. Gaudapada, for example, is perfectly com comfortable without using the term God. In fact, among the 35 um, theories which came up to explain the world, one of the theories was God. God is the cause of this world. Gaudapada dismisses that also. Yeah. So from an Advaita point of view, but we are perfectly all right. You need not talk the language of religion. That's the beauty of Advaita. That's yeah. what I thought. I, yeah. That's what attracts me. Right, right. There are many people who are attracted to it because they are not comfortable with the religious paradigm or even repelled by the religious paradigm and yet they want to be spiritual and they find this. I say sometimes, especially when I deal with religious fanatics, you know, those who are um, very uh, narrow and dogmatic, I sometimes say when I'm feeling particularly nasty that, <laughs> that I put you through a course of now, listen for the next one month, listen daily to Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and purge yourself of this nonsense. Afterwards, come to non-duality. So, uh, you can easily be a non-dualist without going through the religion track. But remember, Vedanta also is religion. That's the other side of it. It is based on a dualistic religion, but it's not limited to dualism. God, yeah. it seems like there's devotion. Devotion there, yeah. Yes. And, so, and I see people bowing. 
Yes. And I, I can understand the beauty of that. But yeah. Why? Because if you approach it in a dualistic way, the, the answer will be from the point of view of appearance. That non-dualistic reality itself appears to you as a multiplicity of this world. And here there are three. You are there, the world is there, and there is something called an ultimate reality. That you may call it God or whatever you call it. Then the possibility of religion opens up there. So that's the track which leads to religion. You may go by that track or you may say, look, I want to investigate what I am and you come straight to the absolute, which is the ground of those three. You don't have to go through that. But if you approach it through the God path, then devotion comes on, along the path. Okay. Yeah. Because you establish a relation with God. Okay. The relation with individual, with the divine, must be one of surrender, devotion. Mm. The dualistic religions are perfectly right that way. But the dualistic religions are limited in their vision. They don't see beyond that or they can dare not go one step beyond that. In Islam also, you will see the mystics have um, very well realized this. They know this, but it is marginalized. It's not, it's not a speakable truth for the majority of people. In Hinduism, Advaita is a mainstream, so it is, not, um, it is not something horrible or terrible to think about. Let's hear it. Yes, you and then you. Yeah. No power at all. No power. Okay. Then, that's why we are uh, barbaric world that unreal is real in the objective point of view. We think these are projection, we are false, everything is right. But if I am Brahman, I can control the whole world. Which Brahman are you talking about? No, Brahman means Advaita Bhag means absolute. Absolute like Brahman, yes. Right. If I am that, then I can have I means which okay I will not answer this question I understand. I now, understand. Yeah. Yeah. This is unreal. I don't need to control nothing. Right. And the answer to, answer to that question yeah. the answer to that question would be that as the absolute, Satchidananda, as pure consciousness, this whole question of controlling something does not come up. It's only when as an individual, limited individual, that this question of controlling something comes up. From the point of pure being, what is there to control? The question of what you are asking is, God is absolutely powerful, such, uh, Saguna Brahman, but you are not God. The moment you bring God, you bring the universe in, God in, uh, yeah, you say that if I am that, you, but this is, the, uh, this is what the dualistic religions get furious about. Advaita never says that I am God. No. The individual is not, not God. No. That would definitely be sacrilege. And, and that is not true at all. All right. Uh, so verse 35 uh, from, from Dukya and what Vivekananda says in Karma Yoga that every action in essence can be can have a polarity positive or negative 
And the recommendation is to do your actions with that in mind. But if you're following the Advaita, you know, and non-dualistic, then it's almost like a never-ending loop because, or you can only practice karma yoga as a dualistic form. Uh, I'm going back to the question about morality. Um, if, if you're acting in non-dualistic or thinking in, in such a way, and every action could be positive or negative uh, based on karma, then if you're not thinking necessarily about God, which puts you on, on a dualistic sort of track, then All right. how does that I'll work? just give this suggestion here. Get into the habit of thinking in the two-tier level of truth. Yes. So, two levels of reality. Non-duality, if you understand, you have to have this conception of two levels of reality. The absolute and the relative. The relative is where body, mind, world, action, religion, belief, disbelief, all of this comes into play. And the very reality of all of this, the, the ground of this reality is the absolute Brahman. Now, your question, Karma Yoga will deal with what? The relative or the absolute? Yeah. What will it deal with? What will it deal with? Is, is it at the relative level or is it absolute? Yeah, I would say relative. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> it's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> relative. Yes. The moment you have a world to act in, a body to act in, a mind to think with, obviously you are, you are talking about this relative world. Here, Karma Yoga has full sway. And your questions of karma, morality, about detached action, all of that comes into play. What Advaita only has to say about it is, practice karma yoga if you would gain fitness for realizing that all of this is an appearance, Brahman alone is real. The, the Advaitic idea about karma yoga would be this. We chant it before food every day. Brahma Arpanam Brahmavi Brahma Agno Brahmanautam Brahmevatena Gantavyam Brahma Karma Samadhina. The instruments of action are Brahman, the one who does the action is Brahman, the beneficiary of the action is Brahman, the one who sees Brahman in all action realizes Brahman. So that is from the absolute point of view. Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Raja Yoga, all of these have to be practiced for gaining fitness for realization of this absolute truth. in the world of Brahma, but how? I mean, it seems very, very much in the world of uh, waking. It is. It, it, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. From the point of view of Brahman, is there karma or not? If you're asking, no. the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> Brahman is safe. The absolute is always safe. There's none of this. All right, let's go ahead now. <laughs> now the last two verses. Remember, 35, 36, 37, 38 are what Gaudapada is proposing we do now after studying all of this. So 35 are the initial, uh, the, the preliminary qualifications, um, the, the fourfold qualifications plus Shravana and Manana. Uh, gaining this knowledge, hearing it and cogitating upon it, thinking about it. 
and 36th verse is nididhyasana um, meditating upon this knowledge and then how do you live in this world jaravat loka macharit live in the world externally just like anybody else that does not mean that internally you will be like anybody else that uh, uh, anger envy greed hatred will be there because you godapada said be just like everybody else no you are enlightened so you those things will not touch you at all you will you will be able to transcend them easily but externally your life may not have any uh, any special distinction at all there is no need to make any major change in life externally um now 37th verse this is what i have not said openly this is one more godapada has one more uh, offering to make that uh, one more suggestion to make which will help you to realize all of this he says become a monk <laughs> so he says this so let's see nistuti nirnamaskaro nistuti nirnamaskaro niswadhakara evacha niswadhakara evacha chala chalanike tascha chala chalanike tascha yatiryadrichiko bhavet yatiryadrichiko bhavet uh what is the english for this let me see does anybody have the english 37 right 30 37 yes uh, <coughs> the man of self restraint should be out of all praise salutation and all rites prescribed by the smriti in connection with the departed ancestors he should have this body and the atman as his support and depend upon chances that is he should be satisfied with those things for for his uh, physical wants that chance bring to him okay a completely monastic lifestyle a very traditional indian monastic lifestyle is, is prescribed because this is the most natural one which will help you to become enlightened um so it's a suggestion now before i go into this it is is it an option formal monasticism is an option one can become a monk or a nun if circumstances permit opportunities permit if one wants to follow this path that is there but what is not negotiable is that internal attitude so internally internally one must become monk like whatever life you lead outside internally the attitude becomes monk like so it's good to see what traditionally a monk is supposed to be um and in in vedanta and then extract from that from the the essence which we can actually imbibe whether you are actually formally a monk or not so to before we go into this do i have to become a monk answer yes and no no externally one can or one may not internally yes one must become monk like internally what does that mean so that uh, here he is actually talking about the external lifestyle of a monk completely becoming a monk leaving everything else behind so let's quickly take a look at what he has said here nistuti nirnamaskara niswadhakara what does it mean uh, literally stuti means hymns of praise namaskara means salutations swadha means the rituals offered to departed ancestors one gives all these up what it refers to is in traditional hinduism the religious householder householder religious householder was supposed to have pancha mahayagya 
the five great practices or five great sacrifices. Uh, the, which is supposed to be part of a religious lifestyle. When I say what they, they are, you will understand. They are just like um, worship of God, that's one. Uh, then the chanting of the Vedas, that's another one. It's a duty of the householder. The uh, worship of the, the um, uh, departed ancestors uh, or, or rituals performed for the departed ancestors. Um, the sacrifice for human beings, all for the community and for animals and other living beings. So the five great sacrifices. So basically you would um, perform uh, a puja for, to, to God. You would chant the Vedas daily or in ancient times you would perform the daily sacrifices, the, the fire ritual and you, you would chant the Vedas daily. You would um, chant the Vedas or, or, or study the Vedas daily. Uh, you would uh, perform the yearly uh, rituals, the Shraddha rituals associated with departed fathers, forefathers and all of that, the, the ancestors who have gone. And then you would, um, you know, do whatever is necessary for people around you, the community around you, uh, human beings, and then also for animals and plants and all of that. So this is a, the five great sacrifices for Pancha Mahayagya. And the monk is set free from all of that. This is meant for the householder. So when you say he goes beyond the, the chanting of the hymns, the stuti, that means he doesn't have to regularly chant the Vedas anymore like the, household, the religious householder has to do. Nis, nir namaskar, the one who goes beyond the worship or salutations to the gods. So he doesn't have to do the regular pujas which the religious householder has to do, doesn't have to do. Niswadhakar, swadha is the mantra chanted when you make offerings to um, departed ancestors. Swaha for God and Swadha for departed ancestors. So you don't have to do that anymore. In fact, when one becomes a monk, one is released from. So these are three. There are two more also. The sacrifice for the human beings and sacrifices for the um, animals and plants, for, for, for nature. So it's a very comprehensive view of human life, very beautiful structure. And the monk is released from all of that. Monk is one who gives up all of that. So, what does the monk do? See, the thing is, you might ask why? Why would a religion permit the uh, whole class of people to give up religion apparently? One must take a step back and see what all this is meant for. What is the point of all of this? So from a Vedantic perspective, the point of human life is God-realization. Brahma-jnana. To realize our true nature and be free, that is the whole point. Swami Vivekananda put it this way. Um, the goal of religion, each soul is potentially divine. Uh, the goal is to manifest this divinity already within us. Do it by, by work or meditation, by devotion or by psychic control. He means uh, or by philosophy, philosophy, jnana yoga, by psychic control, raja yoga, meditation, by devotion, that is bhakti or by selfless work, karma yoga, any of the four yogas. By one or more or, of, or, all of, or all of these and be free, that is the whole of religion. Books, temples, doctrines and churches are secondary details. So this is the idea of human life. We are born to realize our infinite nature. That's our whole purpose. The game of life is meant for that. Now, all of these practices which are prescribed, 
I am in the world and I am this individual. I'm trying to make a living for myself and be happy in this world. What can religion do? Religion wants to guide me to that infinite realization. But right now I'm not, I don't want that. I want this world and the next world. I want to be happy here and go to heaven afterwards. I want to be this person. My infinite nature that just is talk to me or it's scary to me. All right, then religion says, lead your life in such a way you'll become ready for that. And for that, it prescribes a religious lifestyle. Be moral, take care of people around you, the environment around you, follow the religious traditions of your, um, of your ancestors and try to become more and more purer, more evolved, more sensitive, more spiritual. Till one day you are ready that this whole cycle of birth and death, this transmigratory cycle does not interest me anymore. How many times am I going to repeat? What's the term? Groundhog Day or something? <laughs> this, it's a phrase, a movie. Is it a, it's a movie or something. Yeah. So you're repeating. It's something about repeating the same thing again and again. How many times am I going to repeat this cycle again and again? What is the reality behind all of this? Then religion itself says, yes, there is a reality behind all of this. That's what I want. That's the question I wanted you to ask. All these lives I've been guiding you towards a better life, a more religious life. Be, you are leading a worldly life. Religion shows you how to lead a more sustainable, more uh, a better worldly life. So that you can become more spiritual. But when you are ready for this highest spirituality, then you don't need that scaffolding anymore. You need only enlightenment. That's what you're looking for now. If you are here, if you are at that point, you don't need all that. Then you come to this life. When you come to this life, this monastic life is meant only for enlightenment. There's only one thing here. Nothing else. It's not meant for earning money, raising a family, doing politics, nothing. Art, science, no, no, no. It's meant only for enlightenment. If you're ready for that, then you clear the decks for action. All the rest is given up. Why is it given up? Because they were meant for this. They were meant for this, to bring you to this point. That's, the, that's why the whole structure is set up. There's an interesting portion in the Taittiriya Upanishad, in the commentary, Shankaracharya, he makes a very interesting remark. This talk about Brahman, Brahman, they talk about the ultimate reality. Somebody asks the question, suppose Brahman doesn't exist. Suppose Brahman doesn't exist, there is no ultimate reality. That question comes up actually. Then Shankaracharya in his commentary makes a very interesting observation. He says, in that case, the entire thing which we are talking about, religion, the society, civilization, everything, has actually no meaning at all. Because the point of all of this is enlightenment. Brahma pratipatti artham etat sarvam. It's for realizing your nature as the absolute, for realizing the infinite. Religion, not just Vedic religion, all religion, not only religion, all civilization, all morality, all our experiences in science and art and whatever we are doing in life is ultimately meant to bring us to that point of enlightenment. If that is not there, the whole thing falls apart. It has no meaning at all. Okay. So that's how they thought of it. Now if you are at the point where you want that and nothing else, then the other things can be dispensed with. The other practices, the preparatory practices. So it's like I've seen you know, the, the rocket take off in uh, NASA, I mean not actually, but in video. So the rockets or space shuttle are always supported by gantries. Uh, 
by all these structures all around. But before takeoff, they are all removed. And the, those are necessary to keep it uh, safe and to, for, to supply it and whatever. But the last thing is they are all removed for, finally. So these st support structures are removed. Now is the monk completely free now? Can do whatever you like, be up to monkey business, monk? <laughs> no, no. The monk is now going to do one thing and one thing only, which is Shravana Manana Nididhyasana. Immerse yourself in Vedantic study, contemplation and meditation till you get it, till that enlightenment happens. So that's the point. There is a saying among monks, so all, what about all these activities which they, we, the religious household is supposed to do? They're all replaced by one thing, Vedanta. So a, a wandering monk in India, even now there are so many. Um, the Vedantic monks, what do they do? They, ha they cut off all connections with family, with, uh, with society. And it's a society actually which provides for them the minimum requirements they need. Clothing and food. And maybe shelter. And they spend their whole day... They will go out begging for their food maybe once um, or maximum twice and they spend the whole day in the study and contemplation of Upanishads, Gita and the Vedantic texts and meditation on that as long as it takes to get enlightenment. So that is the idea of renunciation, monastically. And religion, it is done ritualistically. There is actually a Vedic, a Vedic a uh, ritual called Viraja Homa. Viraja Homa means the last Vedic sacrifice which is done, which sets you free from Veda itself. After that, you don't have to do any of these sacrifices anymore. It sets you free. But then you are governed. Are there no rules? The rule is this one only. You are governed by this rule only that there are rules. If you go to the monastic thing, there are so many um, things, but all of them are meant to uh, sort of narrow down the option, streamline your life towards this only. That's all. So there will be a lot of, uh, every monastic order has many, many rules. Monks love rules. So uh, they'll be full of rules, but the, all the rules are basically the outcome of this only. That you are, the, li the life is prepared for enlightenment. Yes. I was wondering, what does uh, Vedanta say about sexuality? Can you use sexuality as a spiritual path to enlightenment? Alright, I'll come to that. Um, so what does a monk give up actually? Sri Ramakrishna points, he puts it very clearly. He says that kama uh, kanchana, so sexuality and um, possession. That means, uh, literally it means desire, kama, and kanchana means gold, gold or, or money. So possession and lust, these two things are given up. These are the things to give up. So a monastic life, a Vedantic monastic life is based on the uh, renunciation of these two fundamental urges. The urge to accumulate and the urge to procreate. So these two are given up. Now your question is, um, so this is the perspective the Upanishads would take, which uh, say Shankara or Gaudapada would take. But your question has another aspect to it. There in the Tantras, there is one aspect of Tantra which says, Instead of trying to give up the most fundamental urges in human life, how about transmuting, channelizing these enormous psychic powers? Right? So, direct them towards enlightenment. Harness these, these energies. So, that's the tantric way. But that is not the Vedantic way. 
uh, uh, the, the way of the Vedantic monk especially. A monk is definitely supposed to give these, these up. Uh, there, there is absolute, in fact, there are fundamental vows which cut you off from this. Uh, from uh, literally from the acquisition of wealth or from the pursuit of pleasure. So, uh, so that's the perspective. Is there a reason for that? Yes, because these are the ones which tie you to this world, to this relative existence. If you pursue that, you are trying to, what are you trying to say? You're trying to say that I want happiness through these. This is where happiness lies for me. This is where fulfillment lies for me. That is worldly life. That's the very definition of worldly life. So fulfillment for me lies in this. And if I pursue this, I will be, be happy. As we pursue this, we realize, no, we are not happy by pursuing this. We do not get, you know, overcoming of the suffering. That does not happen. Attainment of lasting uh, joy or peace does not happen through accumulation of wealth or the pursuit of pleasure. Then we ask the question, how can I achieve um, overcoming of suffering and achievement of bliss? So, achievement of true happiness. Then the Vedantic path starts. And Tantra also has the same perspective. Only thing is, Tantra says, instead of, Tantra doesn't say pursue that. That's a misrepresentation of Tantra. It's not meant to enhance worldly pleasure. It's rather meant to use those powers to uh, achieve enlightenment. So, that's the Tantric approach. A Vedantic approach does not take that path at all. It takes the path of giving up those pursuits so that that energy, that power can be used for spiritual, for the spiritual quest. In fact, the very definition of a monk is that. Uh, if a monk pursues worldly pleasure and accumulation of wealth, it's not a monk. It's against the definition of being a monk. Uh, let me go, let me finish this. Um, actually, by now I should have started the last verse, but I've barely gone to the second. Uh, let me just finish this verse, then I'll take questions. Um, let me go deeper into what being a monk is from this perspective and then tell you what we can extract from that which can, we can have, everybody can apply in, if you are a spiritual seeker. Um, the most general thing is what I said. Sri Ramakrishna said, Kama Kanchana Tyaga. Uh, giving up the pursuit of worldly pleasure and um, accumulation, worldly accumulation. Giving up means, for a householder it will mean one thing, for a monk it will mean another thing. Uh, so depending upon your station in life. You what Gaudapada describes here as a monk, you can't be that if you are living in Manhattan and you have to pay your rent and uh, you, know, you, you can't do that. Uh, so I'll see what, I will see what Gaudapada describes as being life of a monk. You'll have to suitably modify it, but the principles can be taken and applied. The, your mental attitude becomes like that. You can live a very simple life in Manhattan too. But it'll be, in details it will be different from if you're living in a cave in the Himalayas. Alright. So giving up karma. Karma literally means desire. But it specifically means uh, pursuit of sexuality as a, a, a path towards fulfillment. And kanchana, the accumulation of wealth. Kanchana literally means gold. But it means money, wealth, uh, possessions and all that. And remember, Sri Ramakrishna said this is essential for spirituality for everybody. For everybody. For a monk, it means one thing. For a householder, it will mean another thing. But the principle is this. Think about it. What ties us to worldliness? Think about it. 
just these two. It's these two. And I was just thinking, in today's world, these are the two places. I was thinking I was in Hollywood and now here is this Wall Street here. <laughs> the God here is money. And the God there is, I will not say sexuality, I will just say it's glamour. Fame. So these two, and the idea is, if you, if you rise high in this world of money and glamour, you will be happy. This is the thing to do. This is the definition of success in this world. And spirituality says, that no. And it's not just Vedanta. Any religion will tell you that. It's not going to lead to any kind of lasting happiness. In fact, it's only going to increase your unhappiness, ultimately. Uh, no questions now. Hold on. Let me finish the whole uh, verse itself. So this is at the most general level. Let us go deeper into what is meant here. Um, we're talking about Vedantic monasticism. So you must go into the Vedas to see how they understand worldliness and a religious, worldly life, but a religious life and a spiritual monastic life. The differences. They say there are three desires which a monk must give up. They are called in Sanskrit Eshana. Eshana means desire. And being a monk means giving these three up. The three are, it's very interesting, the Vedic background. It may not seem directly relevant to us, but it's good to know where all this comes from. Because we are just seeing the final product of it. But if you open the hood and go underneath what is going on when they talked about a monastic life like this. This is what's going on. The three desires. One is Putra Aishana. Another is Vitta Aishana. Putra Aishana literally means desire for children or progeny. Vitta Aishana. Desire for wealth or money. Loka Aishana. Desire for the higher worlds. Yeah. What is behind this? Why does one want this? Not what you would think. The Vedic context is this. By having children, and the children will perform the Vedic rituals. They're all connected to Vedic ritualism. They'll perform the Vedic rituals for the departed ancestors, which will ensure that you get a human birth next life. So that, they say, the original Vedic statement is, Putrena Manushya Lokam. Manushya Loka, human world. Vittena Pitrilokaha. By, uh, by this. Now, money. Why does one need money? So that one can engage in Vedic ritualism, the merit of which you perform the yajna, the fire rituals, the merit of which ensures that after our death, we attain to heavenly worlds, which are, we don't, we don't go to hell, and we, we go to uh, pleasurable worlds, good worlds, which, which, which give you happiness. You, for some time you will be there. Gita also says, 
as long as you have got good karma, you will be in those worlds. And then you come back to attain a, a human birth. Provided you have got children who have performed the necessary Vedic rituals which will enable you to get, you bought the ticket for this. So this is, the whole thing is the context of a Vedic ritualism. So what is the meaning of this? The desire for, this is progeny. This is wealth. This is the highest heaven. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Okay. Now, Vittayashana means that by these, this wealth, I will perform Vedic rituals, karma. Karma means Vedic ritual. Karma here does not mean worldly activities. It only means Vedic rituals. By that Vedic rituals, by those Vedic rituals, I have an accumulated good karma. We call it punya. We know these words, punya. And as a result of that, after death, I will go to Swarga. The Swarga is heaven. And there are levels of heaven. Three-star hotel, four-star hotel, five-star hotel. Yeah. I remember I went to the World Parliament of Religions. The first thing they asked me was, uh, uh, so they put us up in a hotel near the convention center. And they asked me, are you afraid of heights, Swami? I said, no. I said, good, I've got the room for you. So they took me up to this room. It was really luxurious and comfortable. And the whole one wall was a window. And you could see out into the whole of Toronto from there. So that's some kind of uh, <laughs> punya. Uh, so not even seven, that was 37th floor. So 37th. He said that uh, you don't have vertigo, then you can enjoy it. So you, depending on the ticket you have purchased, your, your, the, the merit you have accumulated literally, they literally meant it that you will go to the uh, ancestral heavens, ancestral worlds. Pitri Loka. So ancestors, our fathers and grandmothers and grandparents and great-great-grandparents, they're all in different kinds of worlds. Or they go there, they stay there for some time, depending on how nice or naughty they have been, or how much of Vedic rituals they have done. So those are the worlds we can aspire for, if you lead a moral, if you lead a ritualistic lifestyle. For that you need worldly wealth also. Because they are expensive, those rituals, and, and the priests tend to make a lot of money in that. You can see the logic behind this actually also. <laughs> so, there is some economic logic behind all of this. And then the Lokaishana, the last one is the highest heaven. This is a Brahma Loka, the, the exact Sanskrit, the Upanishadic term is um, Vidyaya Deva Loka, Putrena Manushya Loka, uh, Vittena Pitri Loka. Uh, Vidyaya Devaloka. Devaloka here means Brahmaloka. What is called heaven in dualistic religions. The highest possible heaven. The dwelling of God. You can go there. And Vedanta says if you have desires, even from there you're going to come back again. If you still want something in this world, you're going to fall from that again. Uh, but that, that Brahmaloka. If you want that, then um, this is... Devaloka or Brahmaloka. The exact Vedic term is Devaloka. A close English translation would be the highest possible heaven. Now these are three kinds of desires which a religious person in Vedic India was likely or supposed to possess actually. You would aspire for this. Now human birth, human world means you are already a human being but next time. 
So you get a good human birth. And after death, you go to ancestral worlds. And this is the best possible. You can go to heaven itself, the highest heaven, Brahmaloka, and dwell in the company of God. Again, all of these are limited. And you come back, you recycle back into this world again. This is a kind of higher worldliness, if you will. This is not really very spiritual at all. Now, so this is the background. When you become a monk, you're supposed to give up all of this. Because the basic idea is, what shall I do with these worlds? I'm translating the Upanishads directly. What shall I do with these worlds? I who am Atman, I am Satchidananda. All these worlds are my appearances. They are appearances in me. This, this, this world, the universe, all of them are appearances in me. I am that absolute in which all of these appear and disappear. Why do I want to be one individual creature in one of these worlds going from one to another and another? No, I want to attain to my own infinite nature as Atman. Therefore, this is the original text. What shall I do with this world? If I don't want these, these are the ends which I want. These are the means. These are desires. These are also desires. But these desires are a means to these desires. To the attainment of that. This is the underlying Vedic logic of, of sannyasa, of monastic life. So since I do not want a human birth again. Look at the <laughs> strange logic of it. Since I do not want a human birth again, I do not need children to perform the Vedic rituals which will give me a human birth again. Hence I need, don't have to get married and lead a married life with children and all of that. So I give up marriage and sexuality. Uh, that is given up. Since I do not need wealth to perform uh, uh, religious activities which will ensure me a place in ancestral worlds, I give it up. The accumulation of wealth. Since I don't have a family, I don't need wealth anyway. And I don't need wealth for, a, for the Vedic purpose that is going to other worlds afterwards. I give that up. And since I am not interested even in the highest heaven, Brahma Loka or Deva Loka, so I give up the Vedic, they call it Upasana. Now, the means for this is progeny. Assuming your children are also believers in the Vedic religion who will perform the necessary. <laughs> it's dicey. So, and the, the second one is uh, wealth for attaining these worlds. And then how do you attain this, this Devaloka? How do you do that? The, the means are Upasana. There are Vedic meditations or what... Uh, Let's put it this simply this way. Upasana. Vedic meditations. They are found in the Upanishads, in, in the uh, Karmakanda of the Veda also. These are special mental exercises. If you become masters of them, you go to heaven afterwards. So they are like visualizations, prayers and so on and so forth. Um, whereas these ones are karma. That means actual physical rituals performed. These are internal meditations performed. These ones are also given up. If this is given up, this is given up, this is given up, practically in the life of the monk what will happen? That person will not marry, will not have children or a family. That person will not be engaged in, in uh, agriculture or trade or any of the professions to earn or accumulate money. Doesn't need it. That person also will not engage in uh, the regular uh, uh, religious worship. Puja and also um, Japa and Dhyana and all of that, no. 
not necessary. That's why a traditional monk, Upasana means actually a worship. So we, for example, in our order, even after becoming monks, we still repeat the mantra and meditate on our Ishta Devata and all of that we do. A traditional Shankarite monk would actually not do that also. So there is this funny story of one of our monks on, our, on a pilgrimage to um, Amarnath. So they are in tents on, in the high Himalayas. So in the evening, the monk from our order, he sits down, wraps a, um, a blanket around himself and sits straight and starts meditating, repeating the mantra. And another monk from a traditional Shankarite order, he pokes his head into the tent and he says, What Swami? Upasana even now? Kya Mahatma Ji, bhi Upasana? Even now you are doing Upasana? So that's their attitude. But remember, when we do Upasana, uh, they also do it. There's a whole different side to it. Uh, when we do Upasana, it's not for attaining higher worlds. It's for attaining enlightenment. In fact, well, this is a different story altogether. But anyway, so um, because it's an important thing to keep your mind focused on, uh, uh, on a higher reality. In fact, I have heard the, the traditional idea of monasticism in Shankara Vedanta is so high and so subtle and difficult to grasp. Many people who take it to that path, they don't understand what they're going in for. Um, I remember I was in a gathering of traditional monks in Shankara, uh, this non extreme non-dualist monks. And one young monk who had just taken the vows of monasticism, maybe a few months ago, he comes to the teacher and he says, Swami, so I've become a monk now. The master, he says, uh, yes, you have. Um, so what do I do now? <laughs> then the, the, exactly the master chuckled like that and he said, well, 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 so you have. Now what will you do? Yes, that is so. That's the question. What will you do? In Hindi, you can understand. He's, Ab kya kare? And this old Swami, he chuckles and he says, Ha, wahi to ab kya kare? Now, the very fact that you're asking this question shows you have not understood what is meant. So, but there is something that is suggested. The, the masters are very gracious. They'll give you something to hang on to. So, they say that, don't do the traditional upasanas, worship of God in this form or that form. Give all that up. Um, meditate on Om. Meditate on Om. Dirgha Pranava Ucharana. If you want to do anything at all, wanting to do anything with the body and mind means <laughs> you are still thinking of yourself as this. Yeah. What you are actually supposed to do is dwell on the truth that you are Brahman and be centered in that. But you think you have to do something. Well, in that case, meditate on Om. What else can you do? So, these are the three Eshanas. The three fundamental desires which have to be given up to become a monk. This is what he's talking about. You notice, he says, give up the traditional chanting of the Vedas, give up the, that means these Upasanas have to be given up, give up the uh, worship of God, um, that, that is uh, the Stuti, um, then the, he says, Namaskara, give up Namaskara, give up the worship of the ancestors, all of these things, he says, you, you give, give these up. That is the fundamental nature of um, Vedantic monasticism. Uh, wait, one more thing I want to say. So, 
The idea is we are giving up all limited words. In Vedanta, we are giving up all limited words. We are giving up on having a limited existence. Somebody asked, what about individuality? Somebody was asking last time. What about individuality? This literally, this sounds very archaic, but basically what it means is, you are giving up individuality. You are becoming one with everything. Or you realize that you are that infinite, not limited to a particular um, existence of, as a body and mind. That's what you want to put a stop to. That is the nature, that is the very philosophy of uh, Vedantic monasticism or non-dualistic monasticism. Okay, now let us go ahead and see what he said about this monasticism in this, this verse. So I, Swami Vivekananda in his poem, Song of the Sannyasin, which is literally means Song of the Monk. One of the lines is, he refers to this actually. It's, it's a beautiful composition in lucid English, but it's got a fundamental basis in Vedanta, in, in the Upanishads. In one of the lines he says, All worlds, the high and low, do I give up. All hopes and fears, I, I give up. From me no fear be, to, to aught that lives. So these are actually the vows of monasticism, the fundamental vows. The actual vows I will not mention. Because the tradition is, if you hear those vows, you have to become a monk. <laughs> That's the end. If the, the rule is that if, if you actually... Yeah, there are people who like, superstitiously believe this in the high Himalayas. That they are, one thing, one reason they are terrified of a monk is at least one power this guy has. He may tell me those vows. And the, and the, and the thing is then, I have to give up everything. My, my hut and my um, wife and children and my farm and everything. And go out and become a monk. So, if you hear them, then no need to search for your parked car or anything like that. <laughs> Off you go to the Himalayas. <laughs> no, wait, let me finish. Then what else does he suggest? These are very important. Chala chala niketascha yati yadrichiko bhavet. Let's take this one first. Yati bhavet means be a monk. Yadrichiko means subsist then afterwards as far as this individual being the one who is a monk now you are brahman but this body mind is the body mind of a monk how does that live it lives on whatever comes your way provided by god or by by your own karma so he says so as far as food clothing and shelter are concerned that's all your concern is that is, you say, why would you want that? You would want that because you're still not an enlightened person. This is also a practice that you are doing to become enlightened. If you are enlightened, you don't even need to be a monk. This is also a practice. This is also a suggestion that he is giving. So how would you live? Yadricha prapta kaupina chadana grasa matra dehastiti. Maintain the body with the food which you get by begging. Grasa matra means begging with, your, with the palm of your hand. You don't even have a begging bowl, that kind of austerity. And the only thing you're wearing is a loincloth. Last time we talked about Swami Premananda. See how you, you practice this in the midst of many things. In the midst of, of uh, Swami Premananda was the manager of Belurmat, the first manager of Belurmat. Last Sunday we talked about his life. I meant, forgot to mention when he passed away, when uh, after his death, his, you, they went to his room 
Remember, this is the person who is in charge of a huge monastery. They went to his room and what were his possessions? One half empty canvas bag in which there were two dhotis. Dhotis like this. One shirt. One undershirt, I think. And one Gita. An old copy of the Gita. That's it. This is the entire worldly possession of Swami Premananda. Swami Turiyananda, whose birthday also is coming up in January, who was, a, who was exactly a monk of this description. You see, when you see their lives, you realize these are not um, theoretical. They are actually practiced, even by people who, are, who were living very recently. And I, even now there are people living. He lived for a long time in uh, mountains and forests, in huts. Uh, he describes his life in Rishikesh in those days, on the bank of, uh, uh, of the Ganga, living in a hut made of uh, twigs and leaves. And in the morning, they would study, he and other monks, they would study Gita and the Upanishads. He would memorize the verses. He would go one day, once uh, in the day, he would go out to beg for his food. And sometimes he would be so absorbed in the study that by the time sun set, he would, hadn't realized that he had not gone for begging for food. And so that day he would remain hungry. Once the sun sets, it's dark. And you cannot go out. There were actually tigers around at that time. So he goes back to his hut. Whole night remains immersed in meditation. No sleep. It's not he's practicing not sleeping. He writes, um, once a whole week, six days went by without any kind of sleep and I never felt tired. And I felt scared. And I tried to sleep on Saturday. Oh, after six days of trying, the, um, on the sixth day or seventh day, sixth day, he got half an hour of sleep at night. And he said, I felt so happy. When we get half an hour of good meditation, we feel happy. He gets half an hour of sleep, he feels happy. Another time, there's a description of how he was going off from the monastery in Kankhal. We have a hospital there. He was going off into, um, into the woods, into the hills to remain and meditate there. And the monks in the hospital were so concerned for him that in the little packet they packed for him, with the bundle of clothes, they put some money there, rupees. He discovered it several hours later when he had walked all, quite a lot. And he walked all the way back to return the money. I will not keep any money. On the way, uh, there's a description of how his clothes were torn. Uh, and so he takes clothes discarded in a crematorium, in, 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 in a cremation ground. Discarded clothes on the ground, takes it and washes it in the Ganga and puts it on as a lion cloth. Literally exactly the description given here. Depending only on a lion cloth and the food which one gets in the palm of one's hand for one's survival. Survival of the body. So, this is called Yadrichika, whatever comes your way. Now, whatever comes your way means, usually for a monk, you have to be a monk to realize this. The problem often is not that too little comes your way. The problem is too much comes your way. So, whatever comes your way, it's not that you have to take everything that comes your way. Then you are, you'll be deluged. I know. You'll be uh, swamped with, with, with things which people give you. So, it basically, it means whatever you need. Uh, a senior monk told me once. Whatever you need, the basic minimum, take a little less than that. Minimum, this is what I need to live. So, take a little less than that. Then it's a good practice for you. So, that is the... Uh, but then this is for a traditional monk wandering in the uh, Himalayas. One more uh, term he has used, and I will end with that. Chala chala niketascha. So what is the attitude of such a monk? 
He has two houses. Niketa means houses. One of the definitions of a monk in, uh, in the Gita is Aniketa, the homeless. So uh, in LA, when I was there, homelessness is a big problem there. So I was saying in Vedanta recommends homelessness. <laughs> but of course, not out of, uh, you know, it's out of choice, not choiceless, uh, helplessly. So the monk, here it says, Gaurapada says he has two houses. This is a surprising use of the term because a monk is supposed to be aniketa, homeless. Niketa means house. Here he says there are two houses. One immobile house and a, and a mobile house. What is the mobile, immobile house? The immobile house is Atman, the absolute. That's your house. You are Brahman. You are the house itself. You are Brahman. What you are, that is your, you are that. Know that. And there is a mobile house. What is the mobile house? The body-mind. And Shankaracharya explains, once in a while, to look after the body-mind, remember, you're not yet enlightened, so you still have to keep it up. To look after the body-mind, maybe you have to take a bath in the Ganga, you have to go to the, um, the place where food is being given to monks. So he says, for going, for begging for your food, you take help of the mobile, mobile house. Get into the mobile house and walk there and get food for the, for the mobile house. Or you could take a bath in the Ganga. So that's the moving house and the non-moving house. And remember, even when you are identified with the moving house, I'm walking, I'm talking, I'm begging for food, I'm eating. Even then, the fact that you are Brahman is not at all clouded. I am Brahman. When monk put it this way, when the, when the monk goes around, his round of begging for food and taking care of the body. The fact that he is Brahman and not the body, even while acting through the body, that fact that he is Brahman is not clouded, one. And when he is immersed in his nature as the absolute, it's not that the body will die. The body is still there. As long as the prarabdha for this body, the karma, past karma for this body is there, it will continue. And this, I've seen so many instances of monks. I'm reminded of a monk who was in the hut where I lived. This monk is a Nepali monk who was there many years before I lived. So I was living in a hut in the, in the Himalayas. And another monk, he told me, that you know where you live? There was this um, Nepali monk, another Vedantic monk, many years ago. And he had a very strict routine of getting up early in the morning, no matter how cold. And then he would come and take a bath in the Ganga and all of that. So, and he, they would... There, there are no chairs or beds, no furniture, no electricity, nothing. So it's just a few blankets on the floor and a few blankets on top of you. And the blankets are older than you. So <laughs> that's all you have got, nothing else. Now once this monk, he was late in getting up. The sun had already risen, it's cold. And remember, cold there means what, it's, what cold is there outside is the same cold inside too. It's, uh, there is no heating or anything like that. So it was uh, really a... Um, tough job to get out of the warm blanket, you know. So he went back to sleep again. And when he woke up, the sun was high in the sky and he was so furious with himself. Um, they, he kept the blanket wrapped around himself, raced to the Ganga and jumped in. Took a dip in it and came back with the soaking, chilled uh, blanket and is telling his body that um, you want to, you wanted to sleep, you want to sleep in the blankets? Well, well now enjoy the blanket. <laughs> Sure, we are getting pneumonia. Um, but there are many, many such stories. Many, and, and I saw even now, even the most ordinary of monks who live in the huts, in the, in the caves there, they come out once in a day to go for their round of begging. So that's the mobile house. 
I'll end with a funny story. This idea of a mobile house, I remember, <laughs> um, I thought I should tell this story. Of course, here the idea is not so unknown because in America, the idea of an RV is that you can actually stay in that. It's a big vehicle, like a house. You can stay in that and you can stay with a family too and move around and, and settle down in different places and then start moving again. So that's really a mobile, mobile house. <laughs> that concept is not there in India. Another thing I saw was these ready-made houses. You can put them on a big trailer truck and can take them, buy them and take them away. What? Modular house. Modular houses. And today I read in the news that in St. Louis, have you read that? Yeah. A woman's house got stolen. Yeah. Pe people burgle houses, they come inside and take things away from the house. This, the, the burglars came and took the house away. <laughs> it's a small house, of course. <laughs> and, and a tiny house, yes. Tiny, tiny house, right. And they found it somewhere outside, 60 miles away. <laughs> so the house itself was taken away. Now the funny story is this. In uh, Uttarkashi, in our, we have a cottage there for monks who stay there, who want to stay. You know, they beg for their food and they have a place to stay and they spend their time in meditation, prayer and study. Um, one of the monks, a very interesting monk, and he was, when I met him, he was under the vow of um, silence. He didn't want, he had, he maintained a vow of silence for nearly 10 years or so, never spoke. Well, he spoke in sign language and he would write little notes, but he wouldn't speak. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, if you're in a vow of silence, doesn't mean that mind is silent. So you get into quarrels with others. And so if you don't speak, how can you get into <laughs> quarrels with others? Well, you, you can do quite a lot with sign language. Now, at one point, this monk was so upset with the other monks staying in the cottage, he, uh, he told them with a chit that he has decided not to stay with, with you all. I'm not going to stay, with, I will stay by myself. Where will you stay? said, I'll make a mobile cottage. So, it's like those halal carts you see there. <laughs> so he actually designed one, but he didn't actually make it and use it. So he said that he will stay inside that, just a little box. He'll stay inside that and go on the bank of the Ganga and stay there. Maybe a few days later, it doesn't feel like it. He'll wheel it away and take it elsewhere. So a kind of monastic RV, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, the, but Gaudapada says, we all have our mobile house, which is the physical body. So a monk should have these two houses, Brahman, the Absolute, I am that. And for, the ta for, the, for as far as the world is concerned, the minimal dealings you have with the world, for the food of this body, for the maintenance of this body, the minimum. Uh, then you have the mobile house, the physical body. I wanted to finish this chapter, but the next verse is a, is a fantastic verse. It's the climax of the entire chapter. So maybe we'll do it next time then. And then also summarize the whole chapter. That's a good idea. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu